what we talked about last week, how we pretty much were discrediting the higher critical method of, of Bible interpretation for a historical method that we have. Let's pray as we get into it. Father, thank you for that scripture reading that reminds us that prophesying, that the gift of prophecy, that all the gifts have been given by you to build up, to comfort, to strengthen your church. So I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable, and this will be an encouraging time for each one of us. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This one's entitled Messenger Assassination. We're going to see how as we focus on Jesus Christ, we can meet the spiritual challenges that we face today, including the challenge of if you can't get rid of the Bible, then get rid of the ones who are sharing the Bible with you. And this is a common malady that we find even in history as well. We find there are instances in history where if you can't get rid of the message that seems to be going out of the mouth of the messenger, then get rid of the messenger. I think of our 16th president of the United States. There are some elements of his historical sketch that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, but as I look into some of it, I find there are a lot of things that I do agree with. He became the president in 1861. Some of you are familiar with this. He issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. After the Civil War ends on April 14, 1865, he's assassinated. And I remember just in the last week and a half seeing a documentary on this where they're focusing on that room there up in the booth, right? And it's all dark there, and then the shot rings out him being killed there. But as I look at his statements prior to his death, whenever a president's assassinated, you begin to wonder, okay, what was the deal? Why would someone want to assassinate the president of the United States? I mean, the president himself is part of one branch of the government. It's not the branch of the government. So we should find maybe there's something that he's saying, maybe there's something that he's doing that might have brought this about. And as I look at the statements leading up to this, for instance, at the dedication of the military cemetery at Gettysburg, he said that we, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. We find statements like this leading up to his death where he was pretty much saying this is a government for the people, as well as by the people. In his second inaugural address, which is inscribed on the wall of the Lincoln Memorial, Washington, D.C., I quote, with malice toward none, with charity or love for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds. So we find a civil war has occurred, fought over in his mind a moral principle, and he's still standing for that moral principle. Therefore, if you can't get rid of the moral principle, you can't get rid of the message, then what do you do? You get rid of the messenger. And I'm not saying the president himself is always the perfect messenger, okay? but in this instance, he seemed to have a voice. In fact, even in our own church, in Seventh-day Adventist church, we had an anti-slavery message in our church going, even prior to some of these other individuals. So we find Ellen White and others were against slavery. We saw it as a moral issue that we were standing up against. He stood up for it as well. And so if you kill the president, you kill the messenger. And some would say yeah, the presidents are pretty much uh, puppets now, so yeah, they can give a message, but they're really not that powerful. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Some are more willing messengers than others. But in this instance, some of his very last words show us that they were not just killing a president. They were attempting to mute a message as well. 
But that doesn't happen in the church, does it? <laughs> Actually, you find a long history of this happening among God's people. And all you have to do is go back to the Old Testament. You find something even more sinister where if, if you can't undermine the words of the prophet or what we consider the Bible, then what do you do? You undermine the one who's delivering the message. You find in the Old Testament, for instance, in 1 Kings 18, was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel, this is Elijah talking, when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So you find even back in the times of the prophets, there's this attempt, if you can't get rid of their message, then you kill them off. And here he is saying, not, excuse me, not Elijah, but one of the individuals who's hiding the prophets, is saying, I hid them in the caves. And he's speaking to Elijah here. And so we have an instance of messenger assassination in Jezebel's day, not just one prophet being slain, but many being slain. And Jesus' day, you find in Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent to you, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. So he's looking back, even through the speaking of the prophets, and he's saying, you killed them off, and here I, I am trying to gather you under my wings, trying to protect you, trying to shield you. Now, all you have to do is go to Every day, if you've got chickens, illustrations of this, of a mother hen. And Mitchell could testify to this. We find mother hens, there are some mother hens that are better than others. Uh, maybe that's a life lesson. But anyway, we find <laughs> some mother hens really care about their offspring, will actually sit upon them and, and, and gather as many eggs as they can, even if it's not their own, under them, let them hatch, and then raise them, even if they don't look like them. They'll raise them as their own, and I've even had times where we've introduced, we've introduced uh, a new a baby hen underneath the mother hen that had no, I mean, it was a brand new, it should, the mother should not have adopted that hen. It wasn't hers, and she knew it. But she spreads her wing out, and she gathers that one anyway. It was amazing to see it happen right in front of my face, just this mother gather the hen. In fact, one time, we were getting ready to have a small group in my house, and I was out there getting the bonfire ready for the the hot dog roast, and as I'm looking at the fire my son and I are working on, I hear a sound of a hawk, and I hear a, a chirp, some, some weird chirp out of the mother hen who was watching her babies, and what do they all do? They rush under her, except for one, and that one, for whatever reason, hesitated. Okay? So they're, they're rushing towards her, and they're hitting the ground when she tells them to hit the ground, but this one doesn't hit the ground, and the hawk comes by and, and takes its talon and tries to grab it and slits its throat. And so here we find, it does recover, I, I saw it yesterday, it's still in my house, the hen is full grown, dual purpose, meat slash uh, egg hen, and it is huge, a huge hen. And yet we find this analogy Jesus uses. He says, here I've sent my prophets to you to give you the warning call, to, get, to, to tell you, get down or to come to me, and you did not listen. Instead, what did you do? You killed them. And Jesus is not just talking about John the Baptist and others. We know that Isaiah was killed. We know they tried to kill Elijah. We know from that experience in 1 Kings, they killed many other prophets. We know that they end up being part of the death of John the Baptist and even Jesus himself, the one longing to gather them. And what was Jesus coming to do? He was coming to declare to them a message from the Father. We find in John chapter 
14 through 17, it's very clear. He's trying to gather his people. He gets to the point where he has to throw woes at them, like the mother hen saying, get down or get them over here, scolding. And he's doing it because they are killing the messengers, and in their minds, if they get rid of the messengers, then they'll kill the one who sent them. That's what they will eventually do. And this is the tip of the iceberg. We've been looking at this Iceberg Chronicles idea where the church is like a ship. The church is going down a course and right dead ahead is an iceberg that the devil himself has initiated and brought before us. And instead of just ignoring it, we're going to hit it dead on. We've got a ship that has a mechanism to bust that thing totally in pieces. And our ship has it right here. So as we look at this iceberg, we looked last week of how there's an attempt to undermine Scripture. And if you want an article on our historical method of interpreting the Bible versus the historical critical method, then please email me or give me a call and I'll try to send it to you by email. But it's pretty clear. There's a clear there is an effort to undermine just a reading of the Word of God. In fact, history shows it began with an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, during the, in Alexandria especially. And so we find there is an attempt, even in our church today, that's from ancient times to undermine the Scriptures. And if you can't undermine the Scriptures, then get rid of the messengers. Do whatever you can to say, well, what they're saying isn't true, or, or this guy lived in this context here and, and it applied to them, but it doesn't apply to us today. Do whatever you can to get rid of the messengers. And overall, we're going to find at the bottom of the iceberg is this Antichrist principle. Once you undermine Scripture undermine the messengers, undermine everything you can, eventually you set up your own system in place of what God has set up. And that's why, to me, it's a crucial topic. And how this works is typically some, even amongst the godly, have an improper way of reading or understanding the words of a prophet. Maybe they'll take something out of context and someone will say, hey, see there, see there? And they'll, they'll reject that because they took it out of context. Or, they misunderstand the prophet's message, and then they say, well, I'm going I'm to reject everything else they said. For instance, Paul is one of our biggest ones that people wrestle over in the New Testament. And Peter himself said there are some things Paul writes that are hard to understand, that some wrestle to their own destruction. So what are they doing? They're picking and choosing, and they're not reading all of Paul, and then eventually what they do is they reject Paul, and then they reject Jesus. John the Baptist is an example of this as well. He called to, to the people to repent, and he pointed out specific sins. Read about them in Luke chapter 3. If you're a soldier used to beating people up and taking what you want, then you need to quit doing it. If you're a tax collector, you're used to taking more than what you should, ethically and what was actually required, then you need to quit stealing from the people. He, find, he even gets to the point where he calls out to the religious and says, you den of vipers. Now, you could unpack that and figure out everything he's trying to talk about there. But basically, the point is, the point is, anybody who comes amongst you, it's a deadly situation. Especially if they're an outsider. And so we find he goes over to Herod and calls out Herod's immorality. John calls out specific sins. And as a result, they begin to persecute him. Jesus, in Matthew 23, he goes through the woes and he calls the religious people of his day whitewashed tombs. And we find they don't like the way he presents the Sabbath as a day of mercy, so they be begin to put together all these schemes 
to undermine him, even a mock trial, talking in a mock trial behind the scenes during hours that the court isn't normally sitting, and we find they crucify him. Mainly because of a preconceived idea that the Messiah would not behave in this way. And what do they do? They ignore the Scriptures to the contrary of their belief. So when you're getting ready to discard somebody, you typically have to label them or label a portion of what they teach that validates you getting rid of them altogether. And so they did it to John. Each one of the ones who were convicted labeled him a certain way and were ready to discard him. And eventually, you don't find a huge public outcry in the Gospels or in that day against that. It's only later on, it's almost like they honor the prophets after they're long dead and gone with John. And with Jesus, we find the same thing happens. He breaks the Sabbath. He's a sorcerer. We find even in their own Jewish sources, they call him a sorcerer and a deceiver. And so we find they rejected his teaching. They attributed it to his work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And they even called him a sorcerer to get rid of him. So we find this is how it works. Typically, it's our fault, though, if we are not presenting a clear message. We have to be clear when, how we're reading the Bible and sharing it with other people because we're not proof-texting things here. You could take, for instance, the, gospel, the book of Revelation. You can show every single teaching, like we did, from the Word of God that we believe as people from the book of Revelation. It's all about Jesus Christ. These are key teachings for our time. And you can do it within the context that it presents itself. You don't have to proof text your beliefs from the Bible. Some would also say, uh, let's give you an example. If a prophet comes along and says, you shouldn't eat certain things. Paul talked about that. He talked about your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. He talks against sexual immorality. He talks, you say, well, that doesn't apply to me, so he's not telling the truth. Is that the case? Or does the principle apply to you? The principle of health applies to you, whether or not you're drinking or, or doing all these things that he tells people not to do. And the principle of morality applies to you, whether or not you're engaged with another man's wife or your daughter or whatever. We find the principle applies in Paul's writings. So some would reject even Paul because of the specific applications. And we have to be careful with that ourselves. Don't take a specific application and make it a prescription for everybody else. Remember, it applied to a certain context, and if it, your context doesn't match, then extract the principle and don't reject it. Jesus said we could receive a prophet and receive a prophet's reward in Matthew chapter 10, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. If someone comes and and they're said to be a prophet, and you receive them, and you're willing to check things out for what they're saying, then God is saying there will be a reward. It may not mean that you're going to be a prophet or things like that. It may mean that you will learn something that will help you on your journey as well. A righteous man. I mean, who goes around saying, I'm a righteous man? No, it's, it's the people who are saying, this person's a godly person. And Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. So there is a reward there. In doing that. So you receive a prophet by properly reading the words of a prophet and being willing to apply what you learn to your life, even if it's not comfortable. There are a lot of things in this Bible that in our 21st century people aren't comfortable with. That doesn't mean you start ripping them out. That means that you begin to look for the principle in the Word of God, and if your particular situation does fit the context, you need to apply it directly right over. 
And then you recognize that any attempt to tear down someone, these are all individuals writing these books, God's guiding them, any attempt to tear them down is contrary to what Christ taught. It's not of Jesus. So to go after Moses and say, like some people say, he didn't have a good scientific knowledge, he was ignorant, he was this or that. When you start hearing scholars say that, you say, well, first of all, did you live in Moses' day, scholar? No, you didn't. And second of all, have you looked at the... Most scholars who start tearing down individuals in the Bible or books of the Bible or teachings of the Bible, most of them have philosophical degrees. We've seen that. And they don't usually have the historical, as far as the language background and the scholarly background as far as that goes. We find that a lot of them have these PhDs and they tear things down because it doesn't fit their philosophical way of thinking. For instance, if you were to look into the books that Moses wrote, you would notice there are certain things mentioned there that could only have taken place in Moses' day. There are certain words that he uses that we're just now discovering that only could have taken place in Moses' day. So to say that Moses didn't know science and he didn't know architecture and names of places, geography, means we just don't know the context. You take the same thing goes with the book of Daniel. He said for years that the book of Daniel was inaccurate, a redaction, a whole compilation of different authors put together. And they said because the language, the language. And I said to myself, well, let's look into that one. What is the language? The language is Persian court language only dated to the time of Daniel. And you're telling me that Daniel didn't write it. You're saying it was written sometime in Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek age, when the language that you just cited is pointing to a Persian time period. Somebody in the Persian court wrote this down with Persian court language It was only written during that time period. So if we look at these statements more closely, we find there's no evidence to critique the Bible the way people do. There's no evidence to say, well, Daniel didn't write it. He wrote it. Look at Jesus. He even validated Daniel writing. He said, he said when you see, this, he talks about this abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Matthew inserts, let the reader understand. But Jesus said it. It was spoken by Daniel the prophet. So, that's why I'm saying any attempt to tear down someone who's been trying to point people to God, that God led by the inspiration, is contrary to what Christ taught. I'm also pointing to the words of Jesus. Jesus himself validates these authors, validates these prophets, builds them up, and in John 15, which is our answer for our young people, in John 15, verses 10 through 17, if you keep my commandments, you will live or you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus' whole focus is not on tearing down, it's on lifting up, and it's on living in love relationship with his Father. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. I don't see uh, that type of fruit coming from these types of discussions. I see tearing down, I see trying to get rid of the prophets, trying to get rid of the Bible, and in its place, they put their own philosophical papers. Is that laying your life down for somebody else? 
No, that's tearing somebody else down to build yourself up. So it's totally contrary to Christ. And it goes on, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So I'm not saying that if you're into the historical critical method, you're not Christian. I'm just saying if you follow it to its logical conclusion, it will be a tearing down method that will eventually reject Jesus himself. And so that method I reject because of that. And so why some people engage in messenger assassination is because Jesus, this sounds bold, is not in their hearts. If he's in your heart, if, he's, if you're remaining in him and him in you, then why would you tear down somebody that God used over all those years in the Bible to bring a message to you? It'd be like somebody coming along and providing just the insight you need for that very situation you've prayed about, and it's right there. Why would we reject that? So this is how I properly read or receive a prophet. I pray and ask for the same Holy Spirit that guided the preservation of these words that we have. I ask for that same Holy Spirit to guide me as I read them. I then read the words of the prophet in their context. I'll read the verses surrounding. I'll read the chapter. I'll read the whole book that that person wrote. I'll read the whole topic, if I'm looking at a particular topic, in the whole Bible to compare to what that prophet wrote. And then when something appears to contradict itself, I look more closely at it. I start saying, hmm, well, let's get the Greek and the Hebrew out or whatever, wherever I'm at in the Bible, and let's start seeing if there's something I missed here. Let's do a word study. Let's do, you know, I'll read widely. After I've done my own study, I'll read widely to see if somebody else caught something in commentaries that I missed. And then I will sit back and let it sit, and I'll come back to a conclusion as I look at the text again. And so I look closely at it. So if Paul says one thing in one place, he says this idea of grace. We're not longer under law, but we're under grace. And I say, well, okay, that means I can say hallelujah. It doesn't matter what I do. All right? You got the nice Porsche out there. I'm going to take it from you. I'm going to drive away. And you're not going to call the cops because you love me. And I'm, I'll give it back to you eventually. But doesn't matter, right? Now, that, that's a logical conclusion that a young person could take to some law under, not, no longer under law, but under grace. But if you read elsewhere in Paul's writings, he says, do we make void the law? God forbid. So you put them together in their context. And you read all of his writings. Look more closely at it. He will not contradict himself, even if it appears in your mind that the, person, the writer does. And then, I'm always willing to apply it to my life, even if the particular prescription doesn't seem to fit, I'm going to take the principle of that text and I'm going to apply it to my life. Where the prescription fits, you know the difference between a doctor and a prescription? This is, I'm writing this for you, right? That's a prescription. So if you were not the Hebrews traveling in the wilderness, you could say, well, that's all them, right? No. You read through it and you find the principles. You find what is timeless and comes down. The Ten Commandments, by the way, are not just prescriptions. We find they are timeless principles that come down to every age. And then I apply it to my life. 
And I be, I'm open to the Lord revealing more light to me until that day star appears, till Jesus appears and reveals everything in full. I will not understand everything now, but I will be open to understanding more from Him. And if this is not enough, we find Paul says that this type of matter will cause a shaking in the church. This willingness to receive what Jesus has brought to our attention, there will be some who will not accept that. In Paul's day, he wrote, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. There were some who were saying, they were predicting that Jesus was going to come because you have particular things happening in the New Testament church. Some saw John's death as it got nearer and nearer, meant that Jesus was coming. They began predicting the coming of the Lord. And so Paul's addressing some of these things. Let no man deceive you by any means, for the day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, or this lawlessness. This lawlessness will come into the church. There will be a falling away because of it. But then those of us who remain will hold fast together. He opposes and exalts himself about all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this spirit of lawlessness would come into the temple of God. And in Hebrews, we find this idea that the temple is now, that's being transferred to the church. The idea is being transferred to the church. The church of the firstborn is now Zion. It's now the focus. It's the temple idea. We find all of that is transferred over to the church. And so what's coming into the church? A falling away. A need to hold fast for those of us who do not fall away. And how are we going to do that? He goes on. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. That's what it will produce. And them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth. Not just receive the truth, the love of the truth. Even if I'm reading a book, I've been trained to critique, 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 tear things down. That's the way they trained us to look closely at things Tear down this argument if it's coming in opposed to the Bible. I've been trained to do that. So I have to pause sometimes when I'm reading a book and saying, I have to say to myself, is there something that God wants me to hear from this book even though it's not all correct? In fact, especially in my doctoral studies, I have to read widely for my dissertation, and there's a lot of things I don't agree with. So what am I saying here? I have a love for the truth. I'm looking for it everywhere I can find it. And if some philosopher says something that goes according to the Bible, and I can use that to reach a philosopher, then I'm going to hold fast to that and use it. And so that's how I read things. I love the truth. I love how, if rightly understood, science backs up the Bible. In fact, we'll look at that more next week. And so I'm receiving a love for the truth and I want to be saved. But there are those who will not love the truth. They'll look for any excuse to reject it, most likely because of a life experience that has caused that. Maybe they don't like the idea of the Father. Maybe they don't like the idea that uh, the Old Testament God they see as the Father, and they had a terrible relationship with their Father, so they're going to reject that God. But you don't realize that that God is the same as the one in the New Testament. Research it all down. You find that's the Lord or Yahweh. 
That's the one, the personal God of the Godhead who walked with them through the wilderness. And who is that? It's Jesus. So you got a problem there. So the problem is not the text. The problem is what happened in my life as to why I'm rejecting the text, and I must deal with that. Otherwise, you won't love the truth. And if you realize that the reason why some of those tribes were being destroyed by Joshua, eventually David, is because of their religious beliefs that not only misfigured a picture of God, but literally misfigured their own children and the fires of torture and all of that. I don't know about you, but I'd be okay with that. I'm okay with God dealing with a nation that has piled up its dead bodies of children in the fire, and it's time for them to be dealt with. Could be some application to our country. So we find we need to receive the truth, love the truth, and that's really what will save us. Is I'm looking for a clear path here that God has shown people in the Old Testament all the way down to the New Testament, all the way to eternity. I want to follow the truth as it's revealed. And for this cause, God will send the ones who don't accept the, the truth and don't love it a strong delusion. That sounds almost harsh. God's going to send them a delusion or a lie, right? But when you're not open to truth, then what are you receiving? And who does it have to really go through? Who's the real monarch of the universe and our world now? Jesus took it back from the devil, so he literally has to get, go through proper channels to even deceive you. By your invitation, you will receive that delusion. By your willingness to open up to that type of belief system, you will receive it. But if you chose to stand against that and say, I'm not receiving that, God will honor that as well and send a reinforcements of angels. He'll, you'll, he'll, you, you'll reach out your hand and say, send me a convoy of angels, dear Lord, I pray. And he'll send that. And so the strong delusion comes not because God's saying, all right, Satan, go on down there and work Murray over for a while. Now, look at the experience of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? What, is, what does the devil have to do to get to him? He literally has to go through God. And so, if we would invite God more into our lives, what we would find is there would be less access for the devil, especially since the cross, because if truly we've invited Jesus, his life, his name, his whole love into our lives, and we keep doing that, then we truly have the armor of God and the devil can't phase us. But if we let down our guard and give in to the pleasures and things of this world and begin to believe falsehoods because it goes more along with our human nature, what we want to do in our own desires and pleasures, then we start rejecting truth. And then God sends them a strong delusion, not directly, but what we find is that's the cause. That's the overall what happens as a result that they all might be damned and who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is key, isn't it? You begin to not receive the truth so you can be saved. And what's the real underlying reason? Pleasure in unrighteousness. I could go a whole sermon on just that idea there because there is so much of this going on in our country today. That's the real undermining of the very fabric of morality, the family, Word of God, everything is because of a desire to have more pleasure, hedonism in our culture today. And that is going to produce situations where even if the truth is presented clear as day, as wonderful and loving as day, it's going to seem like a foreign language to people. They just won't receive it. I've been sitting across from people sometimes and I'm presenting the Sabbath as a beautiful day with not just Jesus, but the heavenly family. 
even if I, I didn't even have it much, my family was all kind of beaten up and tattered growing up, but here's this beautiful truth. And someone will say, well, that's just your Sabbath. I mean, it's directly from Scriptures. And what has caused our society to get to the point where they would reject a clear teaching of the Word of God? It's this right here. Pleasure and unrighteousness. And so we find Paul and others are clear. Prophecy is going to be around until we come into perfect unity. It's going to point us back to Jesus. It's going to give us a love for the truth. We dare not reject it. That's why Paul goes on in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And don't get me going on the word chosen there. It's this idea of, and Paul's clear, he doesn't contradict himself. It's this idea of he's called you by name. Would you respond? He's called you to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That's what Jesus said. Sanctify them by, their, by your truth. Your word is truth. So Paul is not contradicting Jesus. He's very much echoing the words of Jesus. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to be seen in your life. And eventually you're going to see him in his glory as well. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or epistle. And he's not talking traditions of men here either. He's talking about here is the belief system of the people of God. Whether by word or epistle. Can you imagine you are steering the ship and you're told by the captain, you know, my sponsor told me before we left that one of these legs of the journey here, we're going to receive a certain person on our ship. See, he didn't tell me what he looked like. He didn't tell me much about it. But he'll come up to you and he'll tell you, do this or do that. When it happens, listen to him. Now, you start going, let's just take, for instance, our eastern seaport. You start going down from Maine all the way down back in the ancient days with the, with the ships, with the sails and all of that. Some still do it for hobby. But anyway, you start going down with your trade vessel and you go into these different places and you're dropping off cargo and you're receiving cargo and a passenger gets up on there and all of a sudden they start coming towards you as you're steering, you're the helmsman, you're steering the ship, right? You've already gotten your orders, but you remember being told by the captain who for whatever reason disembarked at this point or he's down in his, in his, in his quarters that someone would approach you at a certain point and you see the storm, you see everything that you're facing, you're shouting out, get the captain, and this person comes up to you and tells you, do this or do that. And you're like, what? It makes sense. Some, some of it makes sense, but would you do it? And if your captain somehow was off overboard and the only thing you had left was this individual there, at your most dire moment, the captain's gone, you're the helmsman, would you receive that or not? You already had the whisper told you long ago by your captain that it would take place. Would you receive the new information? I don't know. It, under pressure... I know my human nature would be like, I'm the helmsman. I'm steering this ship. That's what God has done. He has sent prophets along in the journey. We know our course. We know where we're headed. We know our ship. We know what we've, our orders that we've received. Now we have to exercise faith that God could actually reveal something more to us that might even seem contrary to the course we were going before. That maybe we're turning 
this direction or that direction. We thought we should go this way, and then we do it, and the fog lifts, the storm lifts, and we see if we had gone the course we were going before, we would have been shipwrecked. That's what God does when He sends the gift of prophecy into the church. And this month in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in North America, our focus is that God has sent people to us at our most perilous parts of our journey as a church to lead us and to unite us in truth. And how are we to receive that? And I'm talking about Ellen White here. The same way I receive any other prophet. I pray and ask God to guide me as I read these writings. I read those writings within their context of the paragraph, the whole book, like I read any other's writings. I compare her writings in one place to writings in another place. If something appears to contradict, what do I do? I look at it more closely. I read more widely. And I apply the principles, even if I didn't live in the 1800s and I don't have a sword, I will still apply the principle to my day. Even if I don't live in the 1800s and I'm not working manual labor on a farm like the, like the Amish do now, and she tells a young man he should eat eggs because he's out there working on the farm. And in another writing, he tell, she tells somebody who's not doing that, who's actually very much into himself, you shouldn't eat eggs. Which one am I going to take? I'm going to take the context. If I'm out, if I'm the young man who is giving into my own pleasure all the time and I'm, using, and I'm eating so much of this stuff that it's just totally disengaging my mind to the point where I'm pleasure-seeking and it's exciting in my nervous system, then I should avoid it. But if I'm the guy who's working out on the farm, who's actually Amish, which none of us are now, I still eat eggs occasionally, but then what should I do with that counsel? Eat the eggs. So we're talking about consistency, and we look at the context. What is her principle? Her principle is health. Health. That's the principle in both of those situations that they have in common. So I will take the principle and say, is there something I'm introducing to my body that's undermining my body? Is there? She didn't address MSG, but I can tell you right now, when I eat MSG, it's going to put me in a crunch of a migraine headache so bad I'm just laying in bed the whole day. So what am I, is the principle still apply from Ellen White's writings and Paul's writings? Bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it applies. So you research the context. You figure things out there. You extract. If the prescription doesn't fit, you extract the principle. If the prescription fits, you better not reject it. And so I always am willing to apply those principles to my life, and I'm open to the Lord revealing more light, even in her writings, even if someone comes to me and says, I had a vision from the Lord, I'm going to say, all right, let's sit down, let's talk about it. And we're going to evaluate it. Same way I evaluate anybody else. And so I'm going to read to you something now with all of that said that I believe proves that she is a helpful messenger. And this will show you where I'm going I've shown you from this Word of God, and she would typically say, don't take my words to the pulpit. But we're the Seventh-day Adventist church, and I believe this is a vision that we need to see. The enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists. Now, I want that to take place, but keep reading. And that this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith. And she saw the pastors going to sleep, and she saw medical personnel coming in removing the pillars while the pastors were asleep. It goes on. And engaging after that in a process of reorganization. Once you remove the teachings of the Scriptures, which first you've got to undermine the Scriptures, 
then undermine the messengers, then you can remove the pillars, then a reorganization would occur. Were this reformation to take place, what would result? Well, the principles of truth that God in His wisdom had given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years that she's writing would be accounted as error. That would include the message of the sanctuary. That would include the message of the Sabbath. That would include several messages right out of Revelation. A new organization would be established. And folks, this is already happening right now. Books of a new order would be written, and I've received those myself. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. That has taken place. The founders of this system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. Now, we should work the cities, but we already know how we should work them. It should be a holistic ministry that takes care of the person's body, their mind, and then at the right time, you invite them to follow Jesus. The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the God who created it. So they would disregard the Sabbath and the God who made it. That involves creation, which we'll hit next week. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice, but God being removed, they would place their dependence upon human power. So what would be virtue and what would be vice if you don't have a standard? Without God is worthless then, the human power. Their foundation would be built on the sand, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. Who has the authority to begin such a movement amongst us? We have our Bibles. We have our experience attested to by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. There is no doubt in my mind that your church exists for miraculous reasons. I never would have been reached by another church. It was something about the love and the message of your church that really reached my heart. I knew that Revelation was not sealed. I knew there was something there that I was missing from other churches, and I found it here. We have a truth that admits of no compromise. Shall we not repudiate everything that is not in harmony with this truth? Everything. Repudiate everything. And if I was to give you my experience in the last year and a half and share with you the documents that have been put on my desk to try to re-educate me, then you would see that this is taking place already. It's clear to me that there's an attempt to reorganize the church. There's an attempt to undermine the teachings of the church. It's already begun in her day through pantheism, false creation, undermining the Sabbath, reorganizing based on philosophy, and that movement has continued to this day. And so what is my answer to it? We repudiate everything that goes against the teachings that the Lord has given us through the Word of God. And so I choose to lay down my life for this book and the messengers that come along to point us to this book. And all we have to then do is turn to another story about a president. On March 21st, 1981, Ronald Reagan, the new president of the United States, there he is visiting Ford's Theater. Where's that at? Washington, D.C. And there he is. It says, I looked up at the presidential box above the stage where Abe Lincoln had been sitting the night that he was shot, and I felt a curious sensation. I thought that even with all the Secret Service protection we now had, it was probably still possible for someone who had enough determination to get close enough to a president to shoot him. That's the same thing that's happening today with the truth. There's still enough determination out there to undermine the truth. And so we find 
he continues, he goes on, and we know that was March 21. March 30, at 2.27 p.m., I was just kind of a little boy, barely crawling at the time, but here he is leaving Washington Hilton Hotel, this secure place that they felt the president's way was the most secure path that he could take, and there he is taking this path, but they had one weakness along the way. They forgot to screen some civilians at a particular point on that journey. And there they were, just a rope separating those civilians from the president. And you know the individual, John Hinckley Jr., was one of those ones that was left unscreened. And shots ring out. The whole story has been shared down through time. And as through all that confusion, different people are injured. For instance, special agent in charge Jerry Parr quickly pushes Reagan into the limousine. The fourth bullet, because there were several that were shot, I believe it was six, hit Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy in the abdomen as he spread his body over Reagan to make himself himself a target. The fifth bullet hit the bullet-resistant glass of the window on the open side of the door of the limousine, and the sixth and final bullet ricocheted off the armored side of the limousine and hit the president in his left underarm, grazing a rib, lodging in his lung, causing it to partially collapse and stopping one inch from his heart. As I read this, I remember hearing this story growing up and just being amazed that he even survived this incident. And as I reread it this week, I thought, wow, look how close it came to dealing with Reagan. Now, we know it was more than just his policies. It had to do with his message, really, that was behind some of these things. People did not agree with him. It says, Parr's prompt reaction saved Reagan from being hit in the head. And even with that, that reaction, he still had one inch away from him being killed. And so here we are. I would venture to say that we have somebody else who is more important than the President of the United States that we're upholding here. Someone else who has given his life for us. Someone else who has laid his life down for us as friends, literally covering us. And are we going to give up faithfulness to him now? Are we going to give up faithfulness to each other now? Are we going to give up encouraging each other to go back to the Word of God now? Because Peter says, this day star that rises in our hearts, it's going to get brighter and brighter, not darker and darker. And so this ship, Zion, this ship, the Seventh-day Adventist church, will move forward. The question is, will we move forward with it? Timothy says, and that from a babe you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able, if we want them to, to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Deep down, the problem with that vision that that messenger came along and told me as I'm steering the helm of a sh little, little sh ship, she's saying, Murray, watch out for reorganization. Watch out for attempts to undermine the Bible. Watch out. Hold fast to the pillars. Hit these things head on. And they will shatter. Because if you do not, if you do not, they are really not after the messenger. They're after the messenger of the covenant. And so messenger assassination, this is the one that there's an attempt upon, even in our midst, to assassinate. And I can say, if you're one of the ones who is willing to undermine the Scriptures, or undermine beliefs that have come along through painstaking study, which none of us have really reduplicated that, can you honestly say you've gone through the Hebrew and Greek and studied like some of these early Seventh-day Adventist scholars did. If you haven't, then you might as well start doing that before you reject things. And you'll find that there's actually evidence to the contrary of your own belief. 
Because if you do not, eventually what happens is the church is rejected, Ellen White's rejected, and eventually the next path gets to the point where portions of Scripture that are clear are rejected as well. And so as I read my Bible, it appears that all Scripture testifies of Jesus. So then they would go after Him. So I'm saying to myself, no matter what happens, let's lift up Jesus Christ. Let's hold fast to the Word of God as it's been given to us. Let's be open for more new light to come and shed upon our path. And let's shield, not because Jesus needs us to, but let's, let's be one who stands up for Jesus and doesn't tear down. In the words of Paul, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, may He comfort our hearts and establish us in every good word and work. Amen.